back, everyone, to another episode of Fangs and Fonts. As always, I'm Ocean. I'm Yanara. I'm Voice. And I'm Roland. And hopefully by now you maybe have figured out what these voices mean to each person. <laughs> Neuroticism! Actually, we probably should have, like, me and Tarl spaced out, because apparently people mix us up. Apparently. Maybe I'm Roland. Just... <laughs> I'm Voice. And that's Voice. Though, when we were doing the names, I almost said, I'm Roland. I was like, what? that would have been terrible. I uh, can, can we spend an entire episode of me being you and you being me? No, because I'll just end up like the uh, furthest I think it would episode. give both of us a bad reputation. <laughs> yes. I'm game for this. Probably like a shit writer's say event. I'll just speak really low. I don't know. I'll try and break the mic with my peaks. And the high-pitched stuff I do? Don't do that. Those are hard to accommodate for. I know they are, so I try really yes. hard. I really have we to send you we don't my, have my any compressor soft, settings for you. I was going to say, we don't have any software limiters uh, standardized yet until Ocean Sophie has, apparently. <laughs> I still like how everyone's like, I can't hear you in this episode. I'm like, what? that's the episode. I'm like, 57. What, how's 58? Oh, 58 is great. <laughs> Well, the um, I'm like yeah, I really got to tell, I got to help roll it with this compression. Well, si- sixty-one is also recorded on the surface, which has much higher Ooh. levels than. Uh, Ooh, I told you I forgot this mic. <laughs> oh, but it was in your basement, so. Yeah, no, I, I had it. It was ready. I, I grabbed part. all of my stuff, and then I even told you. I, but, I missed it. Is all I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, no, I, I I forgot the mic. Last uh, last episode. Yeah, we were kind of unsure how to proceed, but hey, Roland's uh, surfaced it pretty good, I think. Yeah. So, well, this episode we're we're talking about the niche market that we write in and and what it means to write in it and bubbles and bubbles. <laughs> what we write, we write. This podcast itself is is kind of based within the furry fandom writing. And it, itself, we, we kind of forget this is often a niche genre. It's, it's a genre for people looking for anthropomorphic or furry literature. And because of that, you know, we, we tend to, because of the fandom around it, uh, we tend to look at ourselves in sort of a bubble. That we, that we have our own publishers, we cater to a lot, a lot of our stories cater to ourselves and others among the fandom. And when you look outside, like when we talked in our awards ceremony, when you've talked about like things at Disney where it's things being produced outside of the fandom that the fandom takes in, or there's other people that can write books that can appeal to us. But I feel that there's a lot of people that seem to struggle when we push back out, that there's almost this barrier we feel we put up. Well, how often do we end up hearing when we talk about, you know, you have your furry writers and then usually it's like, well, have you written anything outside the fandom? You know, and it's, it's it's a bubble, like it's a wall that keeps furries in and other people out as well. I think there's a very, fairly large divide when we look at furry authors submitting to furry anthologies versus like people from the outside world submitting in. They seem to very strange as well. Either a handicap or sometimes they're they have an amazingly fresh perspective. Which we've seen before and is Mm -hmm. really lovely. Well, and this kind of goes on. The thing with um, writing within the bubble, the furry genre, or any genre for that point, um, we seem to really trap ourselves in it. We start viewing outside the bubble as you know it's like if you it's like the dream yeah you succeed outside the fandom suddenly you've reached out of the bubble and suddenly you and i'm using quotation marks here you've elevated your work outside of the fandom and you're getting recognition outside the fandom which is the way it's usually portrayed is this hugely amazing thing this you've succeeded as it were writing outside the fandom when is is that a, a good thing that we portray it like that or is it actually hindering us well, i think first it's misinterpreted as you know if you get published outside the fandom you are you're oh you made it to mainstream or you're when, successful just yeah, on that when a lot of the times all you've done is maybe publish to another niche market and there's nothing wrong with that that's fantastic you're expanding you're moving out but uh, i think we we tend to think outside is mainstream everything else is mainstream when it's really not 
Uh, I think another thing about that too is that a lot of like this isn't just a conscious decision to quote unquote stay within inside the furry bubble. It hap like a lot of people tend to get tunnel vision in that sort of regard, where you're only focusing on the anthologies, the stories. Maybe you get too caught up in the work that you are doing that that doesn't even seem like an option to you at the time. And then yeah, when when you actually get into thinking about quote-unquote breaking out of the furry bubble it becomes this heralded accomplishment that not many people actually do no is it not because they 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 aren't able to do it because they forget they can or because it's much harder out there or because you're writing for a market that you're not really in or you're just comfortable i think people get really caught up like they they become comfortable and caught up in the um, microcosm they've set up for themselves that they they don't even know there's something bigger out there they they forget so that once you've dug yourself into that groove for so long it's very hard to get out of it you're you've taken to writing a particular style that may not gel well with some mainstream publishers well you may have built up a fan base within the the fandom as well and you feel that maybe attempting to quote unquote elevate yourself or reach outside the fandom is contrary to what you really hope to accomplish if you've got a fan base and it brings you satisfaction to write for these people and it brings you you know some pocket change maybe you don't feel like you need to you know stretch maybe you're you know not complacent where you are but what you want to accomplish within writing is being accomplished in the furry fandom I think people put a little too much stock into becoming, like, to needing to branch out of the fandom to become successful. Um, a lot of furry writers do have full-time jobs. Their <laughs> their income is not enough well, to support them on a full-time I basis. I think that's most writers. It, it is a lot of writers, too. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a little ignorant to say that, you know, once you've broken out, you've really made it. Once you get outside that furry bubble. I <laughs> wish. And, like, it's it's a good goal to have purely for the f- sake that you are trying to expand your horizons and your experience. Challenge yourself. But that it's not the be-all, end-all of your writing career. Well, that was one of the things that Ocean had mentioned is outside of the fandom, there's this idea that writing outside of the fandom is harder than writing for inside the fandom. And I think it's the, you know, the, when you keep writing for the certain market, you get more comfortable. You understand a little more what they're looking for. You understand the ticks and, you know, the little hints that make it that genre. And so if we get comfortable writing that genre and then you could look somewhere else, it's almost the same as an artist um, learning one style of painting and then going, well, I think I've got a decent hand on this. Let's try another style. Yeah. I don't Which, know, because trying to compare oils to watercolors, they're both painting. But, but I mean, but styles, you're like cubism versus realism. Mm. But many, many great artists don't limit themselves to just one particular art style. They experiment with many, and well, even, though they, even though they have their preferred methods, they're quite talented at all of them because they've put that practice in. Well, I think, and this can be taken like with, with writing and with art, is... Limiting yourself to one type also limits the tools that you've developed to work. It limits the range that you can see in. You don't see past the left turn if you don't look left once in a while. But that's the same with genres. Yeah. That's what we're saying. I know, I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) Reiterating it. Yeah. Well, like... Sorry, when you were doing your story for Outside the Fandom, did it... Was it at any point harder than writing in the fandom well the one that i wrote was a story i wrote before i started writing for the fandom so i don't know okay (laughs) it was easier to not when i did the outside the furry fandom stuff i did it was just easier because i didn't have to worry about you know what the tail was doing and where the ears were Mm -hmm. and what the whiskers did and what the fur did and what the wind did to the fur and what the smells and what the you know the extra scent there was all this extra sensory input and nuances that i no longer had to include to make the scene complete, to make the scene furry, I could just go with it because it didn't need to be added. 
There's also your sense of smell as a human is bupkis. There's also a point so. to which that limits your ability to describe a particular situation or a character's reaction to something because you no longer have those tools. True. <clears throat> a person's reaction to something is them scrunching their nose or maybe curling their lips up a little too Rolling far. Rolling their eyes. Etc. There's it's it's a much different uh, technique that you have to use to convey the same types of situations. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that we forget, especially being in the bubble, is that it is hard for us to take those tools and put them away for when we write outside the fandom. But at the same <laughs> point, it's equally hard for someone outside the fandom to turn around and go, oh, I'm going to write this story. And where we primarily see stuff like that is when you have the new writers coming in who are like, I've been writing you know, Sailor Moon fanfic all my youth and now I'm going to write for furry how do I write furry? And then this is where we get into the, you know, writing furry and within the bubble there are certain expectations. It, it sort of brings to mind the phrase, when you pick up a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And Especially when you're a tenure boy. That's sort of similar to how one might approach a lot of stories once they've gotten into writing a bunch of furry uh, stories, is that you, you look at these outside stories and you go, well, this is how I would do this, but it's not quite the same well i wonder at the same time if you have someone coming in a furry or wanting to go okay tell me what does it take to write furry what what do you do what do you change they're asking me i i am i am being an author has never written furry and i'm coming and i would like to write for your fandom what what do i have to do it sounds like uh writing 101 <laughs> yeah but, but yeah the essentially what i'm going for is the things that you're about to tell me, how many of them are actually reflected in some of the works we see? Well, other than the fact that we're going to have characters that are going to be animals. I mean, much... Well, like, this... Sorry. I was going to say, much like with anything, I would recommend them to a few staples of what are considered fandom material. Much like you would with, you know, any other type of genre. You're like, oh man, you haven't seen Pulp? Go watch Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. But this is... this. But I mean... I'm, Correct me if I'm going down the wrong path on this one for your question. Um, where it's... Because you end up breaking into two different types of furry writers. You have those that are writing... My those new that favorite like paws term. and those that like hands. Well, there's <laughs> no. that. But it's it's the what you refer to, my new favorite term, zippers. Zipper backs. Zipper, zipper backs versus writing anthropomorphic animals. Oh. Because God. you have... Because for me, to, for someone coming into the fandom and going, well, how do I write furry? I, as someone who tries to write full anthropomorphics, goes, well, you've got to take into account the sights, the smells, the hearing, all the things Yanara had just mentioned, where it's like you want to build, you know, a, it where it feels like they're this actual biped animal in, you know, a biped animal world, rather yeah. than humans with a, you know suit on that they just happen to act like humans and look like animals They're like i don't know it's still something that bugs me i guess but like but, we we can't sum up what it takes to write a furry story because this is the kind of thing we debate for hours on well like i've seen there's been many times where i've heard in like even utah where you've written a story for outside the fandom and it got rejected, but you're like, mm, I could just make them furry characters and put it here. Yeah. And, and I've done but, that. Yeah. And then on the other side, I've seen people go, well, this one got rejected within the fandom. Now, if I can just give it a reason for why this character is a wolf, I could send it out. And see, the interesting thing with that is that seems weird to me. Is if I wrote a story for the fandom and I'm going to try to submit it outside, I, I would can't. actually remove all furry aspect of it and rewrite it as people. Yeah, I have to rewrite the whole bloody story because there's reactions that happen to the characters that just can't happen to a human body. There's things that they feel or that they do that would just be irrational as a human. You know, you have a character that's frustrated and they drag their claws down the upholstery of a couch just to vent some frustration. You're not going to run into a human doing that. They're going to have to do something completely different to, you know, express anger. You know, that that tingling smell on the back of your palate that reminds you of your best friend. You can't write that in human. You're going to come across as some sort of psycho or it's going to be a teenage romance novel. So here's a new question for you then. Why does 
submitting something outside the bubble mean that you have to remove the furry aspects of your story? Didn't he say that that's with the whole, question. if I could find a reason to have a wolf, my character be a wolf? I think that's the big one that nails people is right, but we you assume can, you in consider for works, fandom. You consider works like Redwall or uh, I think Andromeda had like some sort of cat creature. Like a lot of stories have yeah, Redwall was the one these types of characters uh, and they are mainstream. And there's nothing about these stories that have any sort of human characters in them, and yet they're perfectly acceptable. I think what was the what was in the recent example we were talking about was what Bojack Horseman. Yeah, yeah, he's a like, horse. I, he's a horse. I think no, no, I no. think it's an important. Decision. He's a horse because they can make horse jokes and make the show oh. horsing around. Yeah, the, the thing that has no reason is the fact that half the people in the world are animals. Well, the other half are not, other than the fact that eh, we can make a bunch of animal jokes. Like, I, I think it's a bit of a mistake to go, well, this story can't be mainstream because there are furry aspects to it. Mm-hmm. It's it's just not true. It's It's been proven that you can have these furry characters in a story and still have it be accepted as mainstream. Do you I, suppose that that reason is simply because of the stigma that furries run on right now? I have to take my furry out of this character, out of this book because... No. I well, there, there's. I, I think there's a small point at which author, well, authors or furries in general will go. This can't be accepted if it has furry characters, but I don't think that's true. I think it's more that we're afraid that if we send it somewhere outside of the fandom, people are going to be, why are they animals? Like I think for the fact that a lot of furry is taken as sexual is what makes people lightly ashamed to actually submit it to stories outside the fandom. But although a lot of the mainstream stories also do not include romantic arcs with furry characters. True. Um, that I can think of. If you can name some. But no, like, like I said, I think it's because that a lot of people are afraid that if they send it somewhere that isn't furry, people are going to be spectacle. Uh, spectacle? No. Skeptical. Skept- thank you. People are going to be skeptical about it. The fact and ask like, why? Why are they? Well, and we downplay ourselves a lot, as typically as furries, to go, well, this didn't get accepted to this anthology, why would it be accepted somewhere else? I think it depends on the story. I think it depends on the genre that you're writing your furry character in. Um, There was a quote-to-quote furry story, um, the one that I can't finish, who was submitted through a uh, romance erotica small press. And it has erotic scenes between what is essentially a minotaur and there's cat girls and stuff like that. But they're anthropomorphic animals. But there's no explanation. But it's also a fantasy kind of based world. (laughs) Wizard did it. Or like Greek mythology kind of deal. And at that point, we, we as furries have a certain ability to easily suspend our disbelief when there's furry characters in something. I would say almost to the point where we don't care. Star Trek the Animated Series, there's a cat girl. Why is there a cat girl? We as furries don't really care, though she's an alien, so it makes perfect sense. Quotation marks and all that. But when we come to people where we submit who aren't furries, who don't have that easy suspension of disbelief, I be- I think it's our own innate. We think that they require more effort for them to go, why is this character here? I want to understand why, you know, why do they exist? Why are they furries? And the problem with a lot of zipper back characters is, and I think Fred Pattern, 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 Pattern has stated, you know, it's, it's that whole, why are they furry? Give me an explanation as to, you know, why they are an animal, anthropomorphic animal, instead of just giving me a character with a suit and though, fur draped over. Though I think, and this this was sort of proven uh, by virtue of the theme of the, the anthology, that basing your entire idea around why these characters aren't quote-unquote zipperback characters becomes repetitive, becomes dull. And justifying it doesn't always have to be the case. Mm. If you can introduce a world in which the characters feel natural, and I'm, I'm going to use Redwall because it's the easiest example I can think of. Which is funny because I don't never that read it. 
these were all characters like very very animal like they stood on two legs yet they were still obviously the animals that they were and it reflected in the story the the story wasn't about why they were animal people you just had a bunch of animal people in like renaissance times for whatever reason <laughs> and it was a fun story like, yeah None of it was about why these characters were the way they are, were. The story was compelling enough to get people to watch it. I think we've discussed it before, but like, um, it's we. I think we kind of chalk up things like cartoons and that to the fact that they're children things. Zaniness. Well, no, they're children. A lot of the a lot of the anthropomorphic stuff these days is generally, you know, like a children's show or a children's cartoon, something that like for again. Kids. Fantasy aimed at children. Right. The equivalent, the like the latest example that goes against that is BoJack. But a lot of the time, it's you know it's children, so they have a much lower uh, you know barrier. Their suspension of belief. They're just happy to have cute little animal feet. And now there's a generation of people that grew up with that, where that is normal. And so I, I don't know anyone who didn't like grow up with that. But there, like, there's a from, point from now in the last 30, 40 years. But there's a point to which you can start to see where these people are coming into adulthood and producing stuff like this. And it's becoming a lot more... But even before us was like Mighty Mouse and... God, Mighty Mouse, yep. Mighty right, Mouse, but we're, we're starting, Danger Mouse. We're starting to see it bleed outside of the cartoons. I, I think it's, all, it's always been doing that, though. Uh, to a point. Like, we, we are not I, the generation I, I think, that it's starting. I think with. it also has to do with the fact that media is just so much more abundant. Uh, not the, media, but the penetration of of what's going on in the world in social media. Something to take this over to another genre. Take vampires. How often do you have to explain? If you're writing a story, mm. say for a vampire novel, why are there vampires? Novel, the why are there vampires? And some people will explain it, some people won't. Why is there magic in Harry Potter? Well, I was going to say, there are some stories where I've legitimately questioned, why is there magic here? But, like, elves. If you're reading a fantasy novel, why elves? Where did the elves come from? What are the elves like? I blame Tolkien. But he, expla- he explained in a long, dreary book why there are elves. Yeah, he explains how the gods created everything, right? Yeah, he explained Somewhere. how everything happened, really. <laughs> I mean, the elves were just a small but part of it. Where did the gods come from? <laughs> where did the book come from? <laughs> Who came first, the gods or the book? Where do you get your ideas from? Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you have to read Tolkien's biography yeah. before you can go on to Lord of the Rings, because how did the book come into being? <sighs> I still want and to read the Silmarillion, despite it being like... It, apparently, if you read it like a Bible, it's good. I don't know how to read a Bible. So I, I think there is two different... Uh, ways of looking at though animals in an anthropomorphic story um, and both seem to get lumped together in this sort of rabble rabble that's not what the genre is about and then there's there's like what you said the Fred Patton where it's like where did these animals come from how did we get anthropomorphs in the world what are the creation story side mm-hmm. of it and then on the other side we have the I think the more zipper backs and where it's like, why is this person a wolf or, or an otter or a cat? Why? What is the purpose of this species in this story? Mm-hmm. I, I see that it's actually two different things. Um, in Redwall, for example, we don't know why everyone is an animal. But the animals are all grouped in and, and what's speciesism? Because like, what was it, the rats were the bad guys? <laughs> yeah. Rats, dogs, yeah, like snakes. S- if you were that species, ninja. you were automatically a bad person, pretty much. Which, which is like a subtle in, form of racism, but yeah, it, it's the whole yeah, like furry archetype where you've got these particular critters that are like snakes considered the bad guy because they just sort of eat indiscriminately, <laughs> and then rats are mangy and dirty, and those things you fumigate out <laughs> of your house. so bad. <laughs> and so they're the bad guys. Like, there's... Those dirty rats. <laughs> you Foxes dirty are rats. crafty and thieves. And, yeah, and there's not, the whole stereotyping, too, right? They're not always bad, but they're not usually good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you really have to work twice as hard at the, having those characters as good. And rabbits are just Scottish and talk with an accent. But if someone wrote that today, would it be criticized for that? Probably. It was probably criticized back then, too. I mean, I think at this point, anything is up to 
to You're never going to make anybody happy. You're always going to have someone criticizing it or bitching. Mm -hmm. Like, especially in, in a world where criticism and communication are so widespread. So, so intermingled. If there's, like, you can write your story however you want, as everyone should encourage you to do so. Um, and people will still say there's rules in writing, but there aren't at the same time. But within our own genre, like within our bubble, we kind of have our own arguments, pause versus hands, you know, make the species matter, etc. And then... Damn tail argument. Do those arguments exist past the bubble? If you're submitting elsewhere? I, I feel like because it's so commonplace for us that we can argue without hesitation whether or not you should use paws or hands and the person that's reading in the quote-unquote mainstream publication is going well this guy's a fox <laughs> and that's it like it doesn't matter if you've used paws or hands <laughs> to describe his limbs extra, that guy's a fox that is weird like if you look at like jess's books until you get to book two i guess or halfway through Duke 2, at, at that point, every species of, of animals makes sense, except griffins. <laughs> You're like, all of these exist in the real world, except for that one. One of these things. Until book two, and we learn like two others, but like, is that a slight push of like, huh? <laughs> you know? Like, she did griffins because she likes griffins and she wanted to write a story about griffins. So Griffins. Yeah, right? So Griffins. Done. Granted. <laughs> Griffins! Should we go, come on, Jess. <laughs> we'll put our arms akimbo and stare at her. Where are the spider fulfs? You clearly need spider fulfs. clearly have not bought that item that will put a spider fulf in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Next thing you know, we're going to have a purple tiger-striped griffin. <laughs> but, well, yeah. And it's, th there's no line there. I mean, you can write about whatever the heck you want. But I think and it can still be considered mainstream, provided you're in the right publication. To piggyback on what you said, I when I think someone outside the fandom reading it understands what hands are. They go, they un, they're like, oh, I have hands. This, I know what they do. This, this, this person must be using them as like a this hand. mercenary tiger running around shooting people with his hands. Well, well, clearly I understand. I can envision. That it's an anthropomorphic animal with hands. Oh, but I we do, as yeah. we as furries go, but they're technically paws. They should be paws. They should be called yeah. paws. Ima imagine how. No, but paws can't grip the door. Yeah, paws Sorry. Can't Imagine how nothing. descriptive it. If it. Imagine. Oh. Okay, no, no. Imagine how descriptive it is for someone to read about this walking, talking fox with hands. If, if he's got paws, he probably doesn't have any dexterous fingers and, yeah, can't cartoon. open a door handle or pick up a glass. When I was young and dumb, I was going to get a tattoo of a cheetah holding a gun. Basically, I saw this tattoo artist had an anime character and she was pointing a gun straight at the viewer of the tattoo. And I said, awesome. And I said to him, I want something like this, but I want it with a cheetah holding a gun in his hands. And he went, okay. I got a call two weeks later going... I've tried and tried and tried to make this work. There is no way a cheetah can hold a gun in its paws. You need a new tattoo artist. Yeah, because you said hands. <clears throat> and it's it's a case of his mind took anthropomorphic. It took you literally. And literally was just like, okay, he's holding a gun in his paws. And it's just like, and part of me is just like wondering what his drawings were like. I mean, there, <laughs> Give there's... Give me your scrapbook. And, like, there's the difference in somebody that reads outside of the furry bubble as opposed to someone reading inside of it. We know that we, some people consider the terms hands and paws are interchangeable. They're not really. Yes, they are. <laughs> they're, we know, we know. There's a point to which a paw is more animal-like and doesn't have digits. And then a hand would be fully fleshed human hand with Fur and paw pads. We know. We know that we. I use paws. I can totally start the argument, but I won't. So continue. Th that on. would that would be my particular <laughs> argument for. But like, I can pull look, up the definition of paw. Some, but somebody looking at it from the outside would look. Hand. I have hands. Or paw. My cat has paws. And that's the image they're greeted with. Technically, the, the, we also have paws. To go to go back though, when we when, when the first time I ever wrote a furry story, I had hands. They made sense to me. 
my furry characters have hands because paws are like I'm used to animal paws. And then it was brought up to me by Reachin that it should be paws because, to quote, um, there are furries who do not like the term hands. Reachin is one of the who, ones that I swear has been the people that is like, he's no, you can't use paws because paws there, don't do things. There no, are he's been the like, one where he's like, there are furries out there that will argue if your character has hands, change it to paws. I don't care if you don't want to use the word hands. <laughs> See, so I... Is that part of your own style, your own choice? Like, why, why, would I change, why would I change that writing style based on what other people are... Exactly! Anyway. As mark. an editor, I'm not... No, no, we don't need to mark. No need to mark that. As an editor, I'm not going to be like, no, they got to be hands or they got to be paws. Unless you, you actually have a feral type animal and you're saying it has hands. But <laughs> that would be freaky as hell. <laughs> would, yeah, it's the monkey's hand, creepy. That sounds I think like one of Tarl's stories. I was gonna say I read a story using like animals, that. and we already call them paws. But like, you, you can see where there's sort of a delineation between hands and paws. When somebody thinks paws outside <laughs> of the fandom, it's horse. It's like a cat paw. I I don't paw. think if 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 you wrote a small book. I, I, you know what? I, I wouldn't even be surprised if there was some paw joke in Zootopia. There like, probably is. I got is. my paws all over that. I, I'm, I'm going to go. Be a line in the movie. I'm going to go no see it in about three twice. days. We'll find out. God, <laughs> like, is it out that soon? Yeah. Huh. I highly doubt that that if I wrote something in a story that, you know, he he grabbed the doorknob with his paw, that people are going to flip over that. I think it's an issue that we have within our fandom because we actually sit around thinking about and that. Deliberate and everyone shit. else is going to be like, yeah, it's an animal. They have paws. They just, it's easy. No, like I, I agree. Like, <laughs> I think we put way more thought than anyone <laughs> we, outside we, we of the put, fandom would. We do. I, I agree. We put too much emphasis I on think, it. Like, I think we put true. as much effort into it as we do akimbo on it, this podcast <laughs> than anybody else. It, it, oh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be as much of a discussion topic as it is, really. But, yeah, and I mean, most people are going to be wowed by the fact that there's this animal person in your story than they are about whether or not you use paws or hands. There's no reason that anthropomorphic works can't work in the mainstream media. But the part where, you know, they, they think that they, it's all, they're making it for us, I think is starting, is this lens that we have that we put up that, you know, I, we I, think that things are for us and that these are not for us and these are not for people outside of us. And we, like, the, the bubble that we have, our niche market, is really something we've put up ourselves. we put up this barrier that states, well, no, we have to care about these issues. And if we sent it out there, well, they tear us apart because... How could anyone out there understand because they're not in here? Mm -hmm. Like the exact, uh, the the pause versus hands things we just had. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I don't think people outside are having that disagreement, but I, we, I we're just, having it here because we're like, well, we've got to have it set right so that when we push it outside, people will understand. <laughs> when in reality, they're just like, yeah, it's an animal character. Okay. I, I just think it sets a light precedent, but I mean, I, I will agree with you. It's not that important. I do like the please notice me senpai. <laughs> but no, you're you're right. I do think that we tend like we do this to ourselves. So why we, do we do this? Hmm. Again, I think it's just habit. We've we want to be may, individuals. May, maybe people wanted an easier way to pedal furry back when it was a lot more eccentric than it is today because there's so much more weird stuff than furry nowadays. Yep. That it's. It was easy for us to create a micro market of smut and porn and other fine well, quality literature um, and sell it to ourselves, produced by ourselves. The, the, but the thing is, is, as far as niche markets go, we are unique in that we have three plus publishers that are selling pretty much exclusively do not other niche art. markets have their own publishers that sell to their well, own the thing markets? is is the vampire so you say the vampire niche or the star wars doesn't really well star well Trek. hold on hold on vamp because vampires is close as soon as you expand out from vampires it becomes horror horror has its own self pubs same with fantasy well, that's, same that's with science fiction for us if you expand out we're usually putting the sci-fi fantasy book. right 
Well, but this is, and the further you go out, there's bubbles within bubbles within bubbles. It's bubbles all the way down. I want to pop them. And that's one of the things I don't think we realize in the fandom in our own little bubble is, yeah, you expand outside of us and we're part of another niche, which is the science fiction fantasy market. And they have publishers too, but you go in small and very rarely do you ever find small pubs that are set on one kind of theme or genre. There's MB Press does Monster Hunters. That's their entire, that's their gimmick. That's their thing. That's all they're doing. Guess what? They're in trouble. Um, Samhain Press, which is a small horror um, press, they just went under. And yet we as the furries have enough buying power that, you know what, our publishers have been going strong for a while and they keep getting stronger. Actually, that'd be one of the things I'd like to ask. because we have more conventions? I think it's, we have more conventions. I think we have more people who are willing to spend money on products. And because I don't, like, I go to, say, a Love, the Lovecraft Con that happens every so often. I've seen the tables. Their tables have nothing on the sheer number and style of some of our conventions. I mean, even Furry has better tables and more tables than some of these Lovecraft conventions. And that's another small niche market that you have your Lovecraft writers that tend to write just in Lovecraft. And same problems we do when they reach outside. You get stories like my Cthulhu punk story, which makes sense to a, you know, a person who loves Lovecraft. But outside, there's certain explanations that are missing. I think it's easy as well for people to get stuck in the furry bubble, much like the Lovecraft bubble or the whatever else happens to be out there because that's all they want to do Mm -hmm. if that's all you want to do then what reason do you have to move outwards if your entire market is right there well and this goes back to the (coughs) use of the word elevate your work into outside of the furry fandom into the mysterious beyond at what point did that become you know yeah you write furry but Oh, have you written anything outside the fandom? Since when has that become the glowing standard? I think that becomes more of an argument of what do you consider success or stature. What what is your goal? Yeah, like like if my goal is not to submit outside the furry bubble, then what's the incentive? I think like like what we were discussing in our way here is, you know, the purpose of the guild. Um, Is the guild here to show other people within the fandom where they can find good fandom literature or are we here to be a beacon to people outside of our niche genre um like i I don't think my personal fulfillment is defined by whether or not i'm publishing the furry fandom but as long as i'm always pushing those boundaries Mm -hmm. even if the furry bubble simply becomes bigger that's still better than where we were before where Maybe we weren't quite as well known or revered. Like how we're all waiting for the Zootopia money to trickle down. <laughs> well, one of the things that stuck with me... You convert some, them so we have you, things you know, to feed them. You know that's going to be at least like 50 dozen artist cash cows oh. Zootopia. Oh. It already is. Yeah, I'm really... It, it already is, but yes. Um, so next year's <laughs> Guild Anthology will be Zootopia, Zootopia. fan fiction. <laughs> that will get We will trouble. cash it as well. <laughs> One of the, right after Disney sues you. One of the things that has stuck with me over the years. <laughs> a pulp story. Well, <laughs> one of the things that stuck with me, and I think this kind of goes with the case of writing for outside of the family, or outside of the fora. Fandom. We're all just Fandom. one big family here. Or for me. For... I don't know. But writing outside of it. Whatever the when hell I was, when I When I was in my first year and second year of fine arts... In college, um, actual college, not like in the U.S. where they mix the two up, but I was doing stuff. And in my free time, I would draw anime, I would draw furry. And when my dad and I hung out, because my dad was lending me money, I would show him not the stuff I was producing in class, because to me that was boring. I would show him the stuff that I'm doing anime or the stuff that I was doing that was furry. And at one point, my dad said to me, that um, he's like, well, why are you drawing all this anime stuff? Why are you drawing all that furry stuff? When are you going to draw real art? 
And I think that's one of the things that we as fandom writers and fandom artists look at. And we, we have issues in the back of our mind going, I think we're afraid that when we sit there and talk to someone, it's like, yeah, I'm a published writer. And they go, yeah, what have you written? Oh, I've written here, here, and here. And they look at it and go, well, this is furry. When are you going to write a real book? And it's, I think it's that sting because we all know that we've written... We have put more... <laughs> this actually just happened to be on Sunday when I was out with uh, like a group of my friends when I go to play Magic. Yeah. And we were talking about some of the stories that the Magic community has made and we're just like, eh, we're not that. You know, we find them sometimes subpar and I'm like, yeah, I'm a published author. And, you know, this has made money. And my friend's like, ah, oh, it's just been furry, furry fiction or whatever. I'm like, it's on Amazon, you know. <laughs> It's under a publisher. You can go look it up. Like, <laughs> Well, and, that, and I think that's the thing that they don't... a lot. I mean, they don't understand the amount of work that's the, going yeah. into it is the same as any other writer. Oh, at the it's, same, like, if you go back to your vampire an, uh, yeah. analogy, it's like, well, what have you written? Well, I wrote a bunch of vampire books. It's, it's like, one of those things where... So when are you going to write something real? If, yeah. if people actually paid attention to the amount of work that went into stuff like that, they wouldn't say that. Well, maybe, was, maybe they would. Maybe if but, they read the story and went, oh, this is actually a story I would enjoy. You don't actually I've, have to be part of the niche genre. And I have had long, heated debates with people that are like, oh, yeah, that furry trash. I'm like, you haven't even read it. Yeah. No, no, because they read something bad they read before, and so the rest must be trash. I mean, really, one of the two, yeah. It's like, I've read one story. I'm an, an expert on all furry literature. I'm like, just shut up and read the story. Yeah. Well, it's like my dad. My dad reads my stories, the clean ones. And... You know, he has no issues with the fact that they're anthropomorphic animals. He doesn't sit there and ask me, so why are these characters like this? For him, the suspension of, I mean, he's a hardcore science fiction writer, used to read all the Star Trek books and all that. He doesn't have that issue with the suspension of disbelief that here's a bunch of animals running around. Or if he has, he hasn't mentioned it. But, and I mean, much like as I said with the podcast, where they were like, oh, you've done a podcast for two years? Well, how many listeners do you have? Oh, you probably, no one listens to you. How many people listen to your podcast? Uh, why well, why is that person your friend again? Well, it's yeah. that's just his mentality. Trust me, on the same one, on the same trip, he also said, why have you not had a kid? And why don't you bike to work every day? Why so, is this person? On, on the flip side, I've had friends go, oh, cool. Like, and like, how many do you have? And I'm like, oh, that's how many we have on Twitter. And they're like... That is surprisingly many more than I expected you to have. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which, granted, you're like, well, thanks for the high expectations, but also thank you for the compliments. Well, no, if, if, okay, if you weren't already running two podcasts and someone comes up and is like, oh, I was thinking of starting, or I have a podcast, you know, I've only, what, what are your expectations? Anyone can start a podcast. Anyone can I, I was stoked that okay. somebody was donating $3 yeah, exactly. an episode. For unfurled, like I'm, I'm good. Well, there's we we are so appreciative. Every person who listens to this, congratulations, keep at it, Mm -hmm. because we, as in human human beings, want to feel better about ourselves, and I think that's one of the things where, outside the bubble, have you published outside the bubble? Well, yes, I have, or no, I haven't. You know, the person who has talking to the person who hasn't. Well, oh, you haven't, have you? Oh, well. I'm better than you, when really, no, no, you're not. And I think that's that whole human mentality where we just look for something to one-up everyone. I think it was Kyle Golden, the whole acting thing, where every conversation is you trying to one-up the other person. Sorry, what? You know, it was, he went to an acting class, and it was about dialogue, and they said, if you listen to a dialogue, it is literally, well, every dialogue is a verbal battle where you're constantly trying to one-up each other, Sometimes you'll give ground, oh, yeah. but I, you're trying to basically come out on top. Because the focus is generally on yeah. your point of view or something that you've said, and you're either, the person is either, like, agreeing to you, thus you're winning, or presenting their own point, or trying to change the conversation to their own point. It's yeah. also a fairly common drama exercise where you're trying to keep tension high, and you're trying to keep the invested interest in your yeah. audience. <clears throat> but... I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think it's even remotely necessary to want to break out of that furry bubble. No, and I completely agree with you. There are furry writers who aren't... And I mean, this another bubble within this bubble is <laughs> those who are published versus those that are on So Furry, like Sasuke, who 
they don't want to break out of their bubble because you know what? They're well off in their bubble and they're doing amazingly well. And who cares about being published? You're selling story commissions at a very good rate. Well, I, I think that, you know, if you're looking to expand your horizons outside of the furry bubble, it's because the current bubble you're in has become stagnant. You are looking for a bigger, better bubble, a greener bubble. And that just happens to be outside the fandom because until you're at a point where you're selling so many books that you can't possibly be constrained to one small publisher, you're still in that bubble. You're just in a different bubble and then a different bubble. <laughs> it's like like you can publish out. outside the fandom, but I mean, you're still part of some sort of subculture. Well, JK Rowling's. She wrote Harry Potter. She wrote a couple things. She wrote her book outside the fandom. There was a huge thing of, oh, it's an adult book by J.K. Rowling's outside her of the mystery? Harry Potter thing. Hmm? Her mystery? I think so. The vacant window or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, something like and, that. I wouldn't call it out the belt. But I think it, she's it, already mainstream, so anything she writes is mainstream now. But she, she wrote it. There was a huge hype about it. And then it, gone. Yeah. She writes a short story about Harry Potter later on in his life. And people go apeshit over it. You can't people going apeshit for the no, stuff that's... book eight. Yeah, well, and the people the, are going apeshit for the stuff that's years before Voldemort, and it's in, in canon. Uh, well, it's based off of one of her side books. The yeah. unfortunate thing books. about J.K. Rowling is that that is now the only thing she'll ever be known for. Yeah, uh, she's kind of... I don't know if she... But at the same point, in a hole. but this, but this, but that's not a bad thing. And this goes no. back into the whole furry thing. It's like if you are successful in the furry fandom, Kyle Gold, he's successful he's in the furry fandom. <laughs> <laughs> he's you know, sure he's written a couple things that he's pushed outside of the fandom. He's taken fandom works that he's written and pushed them outside of the bubble, into other niche bubbles like the gay market. Touch my bubble. But I can't. You're married. The thing is, is that. He's still successful in the furry fandom. He is still pulling in money from the furry fandom. Why would he want to change that? He probably doesn't. He might. I don't know. But as it is in the fandom, he's doing pretty well for himself. So with Black Angel coming out, is he writing those for the bubble? Or is he writing that for anyone? And it just so happens that a large target market who like them is the bubble. Well, let me put it this way. There's no furry verification on anyone's website to go to prove you're a furry to order that book. <laughs> you're not allowed Regardless to of whether or not it's being published through Sofa Wolf. Our stuff can be read by anyone. It is read by anyone. But are we writing it for the fandom or are we writing it for outside the fandom? I mean, for first... And, and consciously, do you even think about that as you're writing a furry story? For, except for, for the pause hands thing. For Yeah, for a series like, um, was it Green Furry, Red Devil, and Black Angel? I mean, it's furry-centric, absolutely. Is he writing it strictly for the furry fandom? I mean, the answer could be no. Because if he's trying to get his work recognized and on a mainstream level... Well, then maybe he's hoping for other people to pick up those books too. But see, the thing is, is Green Fairy to me was far more of a furry-centric book than some of the other stuff I've read from him and some of the stuff I've read from other writers. Because he does concentrate on the species conflicts between the wolves and the coyotes. The wolves and where they live and how they live. The otters, the where and how they live. The Moulin Rouge and all the things that go on in there. And it just seems very... But like he's, it seemed like he was catering more to the furry writer who wanted more from their anthropomorphic characters than he was outside the fandom. He can still give it outside the fandom. But we we've also spent a a fair amount of time arguing that the furry bubble is a construction of our own making, <clears throat> and that there are novels that Kyle's published, you know, before he ever started branching out, that people have come up to him and said, "This story helped me." It. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've I've read this after seeing this, or I started with this and moved on to other things. None of it is restricted to the furry fandom. I mean, if anything, Kyle's going to push all of his books to whoever wants them, 
and isn't strictly writing for one fandom or the other because it doesn't make sense to restrict your your readers like that. But when we but when you write furry, are you writing it to restrict your readers? Like it's so your new anthology. Yes. Who is it targeted towards? Who are you selling it towards? Who is horror your and I am I am personally selling it towards horror and science fiction fans. Okay. Which is why I anthropomorphic science fiction fantasy is just literally, but because of who the publisher is and who I know is going to be purchasing the book primarily, it's quote unquote furry, but I don't want to use. So the book is furry because you want to sell it to those who are furries? Or is the book furry because you want it to make it furry? And hopefully <laughs> my, my cholerary of that furries will probably buy it. Because it's in their genre. Down. It, it's it's written for furries. If that's who you want to restrict your your demographic to. Well, I lots of things I don't want to restrict it. That's like, my point. Per, I don't. And very valid point. I, I just kind of I think the 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 question is you know why are you making the anthology furry? I believe it's a self imposed restriction on who buys that book, <laughs> even if it is furry. Hmm. hmm. That's a very good ah. question. That is a very thing. That is a very thought-provoking <laughs> question, and I hate you for asking it. But because the thing is, is the reason I worded it anthropomorphic science fiction and horror anthology is because I didn't want furry attached to it. I wanted to use anthropomorphic, which is a far more generalized term. Well, that's the word we use. When, that's the word we use when you don't want to call something furry. I mean, we all know it. Everybody else knows it. Yeah. And that's why I went with it, is because I wanted to reach outside of the fandom and go, hey, write for this anthology where the, one of the requirements is anthropomorphic animals. You're, and you're putting lipstick on a pig, well, essentially. essentially. Well, I go, I go back to the Zootopia trailer, the first one, when they said, they didn't say, what's a furry? They said, what's an anthropomorphic? Mm-hmm. I, I do believe that there's some merit in saying anthropomorphic as opposed to furry. It's one, it just sounds more technical. It's not associated with those stories that people hear about on the news mm -hmm. or CSI. And we've actually sort of been forced to refer to them as anthropomorphic animals because of the association with furry. Anyway, I think there's a reason that we do try to shade over that particular detail when we're attempting to write for more widely accepted publications. Even if the content is still essentially the same. Well, that could be a self-imposed um, thing for trying to write, write outside of the bubble. In that, well, I'm not going to write a quote-unquote furry story for outside of the bubble because I'm going to get persecuted. That's actually something I'd, I'd want to note to you guys. If you were going to send it outside of the uh, outside of our own personal niche market would you tell people that you are published under possibly another name in this niche market no that's what pen names are for no but okay you have you currently have nothing published outside of the furry fan right? right so if you were to write something and send it off to an editor for like some other anthology that was on horror tree or rayland and and so you're like hello editor here's my story are you going to leave it at that? Or are you also going to put in, by the way, I have also been published under the name Roland Jovaic in these stories, and I have also put together this anthology punked? Probably. I mean, there's no shame in that. I might leave out the uh, more R-rated material, Well, but that's but purely because... This is, that's this what is, I mean, is, is that is that <clears throat> stigma of the fact that I am a published author in a genre that... No, that, that, has, some that made, has nothing to do with furry and everything to do with being erotic and sexual. Okay, but... Uh, okay. Then ignore the ones that you are published in erotic ones, the mm -hmm. general ones like Roar 5. No, I would have no shame in saying I'm published in Roar 5. Okay, then what's the stigma? I think it's the sexual stuff. But I mean, that said, when I submit to Outside the Fandom, I will, if I'm writing for a horror anthology, I'll just go, here are my horror works. Mm-hmm. Do, 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 and I'll put abandoned places in there. Actually, I always put abandoned places. Like from in what there. I've heard, it's 
they just want to know that you've worked with another editor yeah. or something. It's not they want to read what you actually do. Maybe sometimes they do. Well, that's why I always go. But they just want to know, oh, this person has been published. They've worked the process. Yeah. That should be easy. Because usually I'll them. do three books yeah. in whatever genre I'm writing for. And then I'll um, do a, if you want to see my other works, here's my Goodreads link. Go look mm -hmm. at my other works. And then if they want to go look at it and go, oh, my God. let If they have a stigma, fine. Let them discover it on their own you know but like it still sucks that even amongst our friends they you know they mock you because you're like oh you're just writing that and it's well, like i don't know what exactly you're supposed to write yeah and the fact that work is stupid <laughs> <laughs> but i mean yeah and i mean i think we're that's the same with like the disney stigma that you know you can't tell them because they'll but we already know people who are work there and yeah but i mean so, it all comes down to I, I, I want to call it, it's the Wiccan syndrome. You most there's a there's in the Wiccan community there is still the stigma of there's you know you're don't tell people or something. don't tell people you're a witch because you're gonna get people cr trying to crucify you and people are gonna freak out and you're gonna have the Christians battering down your door, which has literally never happened for like two hundred years. Well, exactly. It's, I don't know. Look at America right now. I don't recall well, any witch burnings. And technically the satanic panic did happen, and that was in the job. 80s. I don't know what that is. You can still lose your job. It's happened in the States and in Canada. But You could rebut it for religious purposes. I don't know, well, but you, can. you can now because it's a recognized religion, yeah. but when I was younger, you couldn't because it wasn't a recognized religion. You, you would have been better off saying you were a Jedi. But, in, it's, but you have a lot of these people who will sit there and talk about the witch burnings as if it had any connection to modern day mm -hmm. Wicca and things like that because they because they're so afraid unknown. yeah they're so afraid yeah. that people are going to judge them based off of this not realizing that we as a society have moved to a certain point I mean you get the same thing in the gay community to a degree you get the same thing in the furry community and so on and so forth the bondage community and whatnot so we we, we should not be scared to say that we write for this niche market that I, is the furry fandom. I, I would love that. I want people to... I know a couple authors who have tried to publish outside of the niche market that is furry and have been turned down because their stuff is erotic furry. But I think that had more to do with the fact that it's erotic than the fact that it's furry. See, I... I can kind of understand the argument of some people who see erotic furry as something tied to bestiality. Mm -hmm. In the same way that, you know, people can see Wiccans as being like, oh, you're evil spellcasters. Yeah. It's, it's, make your own opinions on it. But, like, when we take the erotic side out of it, and you're like, no, I, like, myself, I'm the least erotic writer here. I prefer to write non-erotica. Yeah. Like, why, yeah, I guess it still kind of bothers me. It's like, oh, but you just write furry. Okay, well, would you like to write something and get it published? Would you? Yeah. Like, what am I supposed like, to why, write? What is what is the classic tale that you should be proud of telling and getting written? Yeah. Why is it suddenly in your mind easier that I get published in furry? Why is it you know a if, non like, a non like, like going back to vampires? If I wrote if I was yeah. published under some small vampire press, are you going to say, well, he just writes vampire fiction? Ooh. Well, and haha, uh, Twilight. There was an how many diamonds are in your book? Well, there was an article uh, that a lady wrote for our in an interview that happened in the Rue Morgue, where all she writes is teenage vampire stories. Her care, you know, and it's about it's kind of a vampire hunter, but not. And she's made a huge living off of it. But she's also written zombies. She's also written werewolves. But people only care about her vampire stories. And it was just a really interesting read to go through it and go... Because that's the case, as you were saying. Oh, all you write is vampire but, stories. What right? I found interesting was, like, the thing on Sunday. The friend that spoke up right away was like, he writes furry fan fiction. I was just like, what is how is it fan, fan fiction? fiction? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I write my own new characters and new <laughs> settings and new worlds. Do you, do you take fan road trips because somebody else drove that yeah. road before? <laughs> fan road trips. <laughs> oh, you're going to the game with your jersey. You're just ready. You're just a fan. You're yeah. just sports fan oh, fiction at the at the arena tonight. You're, you're just a fan fan. There's so many more fans before you. 
Sorry. But we, we've had discussions like this before as well, where people simply look down on you because you're a writer even. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, well, it's, um, again, writing excuses. It's like, oh, sorry, you, you never made it as a professional. And like, well, what do you mean? Like, if you play basketball, <coughs> people don't say, oh, sorry, you never made it to the NBA. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <clears throat> Like there, there's nothing to be ashamed of just because you're a furry writer. Well, it's you like AAA and didn't get NHL. Well, it's yeah. like my goal is to publish works. That's why I started. Oh my god, I've published works. It's like I, I want the opportunity to present to a community that wants to read my stuff. That's all I want. I, I think there is a small issue where it's seen that. Um, like a niche genre might have a lower standard of quality compared to other bubbles, but that's, you know, that doesn't mean you still can't write something amazing or good. That's mm-hmm. why we have things like the Coyotes to go, look, we have quality work. We're awarding it because we think it deserves it. Well, and that's one of the reasons we started up this podcast is mm-hmm. because we wanted to go, hey, let's increase furry works and let's... Let's talk about it. Let's like, talk about it. Yeah, that, Maybe that's, we'll inspire others to elevate themselves in the fandom. That's a big point of contention between furry authors in general is the quality of work that comes in. At least it is, as far as I'm concerned, in a lot of discussions because people like to devalue their work or simply stop trying because oh it's furry what does it matter so i think what we're mostly trying to say is you know write what you want to write be proud of what you write well that's exactly it and that people people will try to move outside their their personal comfort zone when they're ready and that's that's what i think the furry bubble quote unquote is is that your own personal comfort zone when you're ready to move on you'll move on well like I, i still find it weird how we have this mentality that the stories we write sometimes can only be read within the fandom. And that there's no reason why anyone outside of them would read them. Um, like, like, you know, our parents, you know, were like, hey, look, I wrote a story. And they're like, it's almost, sometimes it's like, oh, that's cute. Or that was actually really good, you know. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm lucky. My, my dad wants to read my stories. I'm like, okay, let me find you something. There's something to be said about not being offended when somebody doesn't want to read a particular kind of work as well well it's it goes back to it being our babies but that said as we keep using the vampire but it can be for any niche thing i mean hell you could be a fantasy writer and you're still gonna have people who go well why are you writing that fantasy crap yeah to be fair i do have friends that like they tell their friends who are trying to be writers and i've been told like oh man you have no idea how jealous they are that you've been like published and i'm like they can do it too. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is, and, and it's the same thing going writing outside the fandom. Writing outside the fandom is just as hard as it is writing inside the fandom. The, one is not easier than the other. The only difference is the slush piles tend yeah. to be yeah. slightly larger. Yeah, that would be a big problem, yeah. or a big key factor, I should say. It's not a problem, but. But our slush piles are growing. Yes, it's like, cool. Roar 7 had over 80. Um, even Heat had almost like 50 or 60 the last one. Like, No, and it's it's good. And it means that there's... And I mean, even three years ago or whenever we started this podcast, look at how many writers we know, how many writers are we converse with regularly on either the Furry Writers Guild or Twitter or Telegram or wherever. There's a lot more. And it's amazing that it's just like, because especially for like the science fiction horror thing, I'm getting writers where I'm just like, I've never read your work. And I'm excited to see what it is. So yeah, be proud of what you write, despite, even if nobody else does. You did (laughs) a thing, and that thing is awesome. Yeah, I think the the other moral to this story as well is that... Don't be ashamed for what you write. Yeah, don't be ashamed for what you write, and... Don't be afraid to move outside that furry bubble. There's no qualifications. There really isn't a bubble. That, That's the thing. Yeah, there, That's what I think I've been trying nothing, to hammer. There's that... nothing to say that you can't go outside the fandom and submit your story, furry or not, and have a chance of, get, of it getting accepted. Like, yeah, they're, don't, they're, don't think you can only sell your story within and the only people who care about your story are the people within and that the people outside have it so much better because like, it's pretty much the same world out there you just 
You, what's what what's closing you in is your thinking. Furry furry publishers versus your regular pub- publishers are looking for the same thing. They're or your other for, niche. Publishers. They're looking for a compelling story that people are going to enjoy reading that will sell. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. They want a good story. And there's there's no qualifications to tell you you can't do that. What do you think? <laughs> send us emails. We like emails. You can send them to fangsandfonts at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us. Or send us DMs now because I changed that sweaty on changed that setting on Twitter, so now you can actually send us DMs <laughs> <laughs> at Fangs and Fonts, or you can send us stuff on Facebook uh, at, at Fangs, Fangs and, and Fonts. Fonts, or you can just say hello. I enjoyed this podcast, and we'd be like, thank you. Otherwise, we'll see you guys later. Have a good night. Good night. Bye. Good night. Turn to you. writing every day, which is more than I can say for myself. Well, <laughs> or most writers. Writing, writing excuses put it very well. It's like, are you writing? Congratulations, you're a writer. Yeah. yeah. Are That's you an author. What That's a different story. Uh, have you written you... anything that, that involves some sort of world building? Have you published your work online? Congrats, you're an author. An author is published work. An author is a creator. It has nothing to do. We did a whole episode on this. I thought that's how we did the separation. We know. We realized there wasn't a separation. Uh.